Isaiah 53, starting at verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for your son. And we pray, Lord, that you would open our ears and our minds uh, to hear and to understand uh, what you would have us individually to learn from this. Uh, we thank you, Father, for this time together. In Christ's name, amen. The uh, verse that I'll focus on is verse 9, and so I'll reread it. They made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. So now they made his grave with the wicked. You don't think that the Romans took Christ out there and crucified him along with the two thieves without having a plan in place as to what they were going to do with the bodies when they had to take them down from the crosses. Uh, the Romans did this daily, most likely. I mean, they just basically pulled the people that were uh, under the penalty of the death penalty and took them out at the end of every day and killed them, or the first of every day. And so this was really a matter of course for their culture. Uh, in our time, we have people reside on death row, and typically they're all dying of old age at this point. And it's quite odd that we even have death rows in this country because there is no row about it. They just, you know, lug, live relatively luxuriously in their cells uh, compared to what people have suffered under truly uh, death in the past. But here, these Romans would have had this prepared. They most likely had gra a grave already dug, most likely a common grave for whomever was going to be executed that day. Now, the... Uh, body is something that has to be dealt with. Uh, I don't know about you, but I mean, pretty much everybody, I think at some point has watched some show where there's uh, some crime that's been committed. And yet uh, what is often difficult to prove is murder in the absence of a body. And so bodies have to be dealt with. They're a reality of our world. And the Romans had a process for dealing with the bodies. So... The Roman soldiers assigned to this were practiced at it. They would have had the hole dug. They would have been waiting there. Just when do we take these guys down? When do we put them in their holes? Now, the question I have is this, and this is actually something that we do have uh, problems with in our culture. What do we do with prisoners that die and nobody claims their body? We have how many million people in prison now, over a million men in prison in this country? And it's quite often the case that Prisoners die and they're not claimed. They're unclaimed property. So what do we do with them? I'm sure nowadays we're probably incinerating a lot of them, and I don't know what is done with their ashes. But who would step forward to claim the body of a criminal in this time, in the time that Christ lived? And then a man that was essentially accused, at least, of sedition, a man that was 
hated by both the Jewish authorities and the Roman authorities, obviously. So who is going to be brave enough to step forward and claim this body? Who would do it? Well, we know who did it, but really, right up to the death of Christ, there was no plan. We don't read in Scripture of there having been a plan. So now, who stepped forward? This is from Mark 15, 43. Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Note that it says he was coming and taking courage. To be coming there to claim that you want to deal with this criminal's body is to identify perhaps with his crime. So anybody doing such a thing would be taking a risk. Oh, you're his friend. Oh, you're going on my list. I'm going to be watching you from now on. And yet, not only he did it, but also we know that Nicodemus did. Let me read from John 19. John 19, starting at verse 38. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took the body of Jesus. And Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. Then they took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen with the spices as the custom of the Jews is to bury. So these two men, wealthy men, both in the council, came to take Jesus' body. So, I mean, they were both identifying with this criminal. And so they were sacrificing their lives, potentially, to show and honor the body of Jesus. Now, the next phrase says this, because he had done no violence. So in other words, this was done for his body for a reason. And the reason is given in Scripture. Because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. So Christ's body was treated with this uh, care by these two wealthy men as a reward for his life, as a reward for how he had lived a godly life. The word because obviously connects this to what had just gone before. Let me read to you from 1 Peter. Uh, 1 Peter, uh, in chapter 2, it's really a rough paraphrase of a lot. It's an application of a lot of Isaiah 53. So in 1 Peter 2, I'll read starting at verse 18. 1 Peter 2, starting at 18. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. For this is commendable if because of conscience toward God one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled did not revile in return. When he suffered, 
He did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Four direct references to the passage in Isaiah 53. And so Peter obviously had Isaiah 53 in mind as he's making these comments. And the only one that is referenced as a direct quote is our text today, verse 9, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. And so our text in Isaiah 53 says, because he had done no violence. And so the sin and violence are equated with one another. So in other words, if he had died for violence, it would have been a sinful violence, and he would have been justified in being executed as he was. What I wanted to mention from what I just read in First Peter was this. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. This is remarkable. This is not, in our own fallen human nature, possible for us, really. I mean, you know it instinctively. You've experienced it so much. So have I. When we are criticized, when we are hurt, when we are treated badly by anybody, our first instinct is self-protection. Our first instinct is self-defense, retaliation, revenge, vengeance, anger. All of those things just in an instant will flare up in all of us. And yet, God honored Jesus because that did not flare up in Christ. He endured this patiently. And the text clearly states that we are to follow him, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. So we are called upon to be miraculous responders to being reviled. And the question I have for you and for me as well is, do we really try? Do we really try to respond in the manner that Christ responded? I don't think we do. Not as we should. Now, I know it's not in us, though. In our flesh doesn't exist this power. And that's why in that instant when you're reviled, the power must come from God. And so you must go to God for that power. And yet too often we are in the moment. We are allowing our sinful passions to control us. And so what I'm going to encourage you to do is this. It happens all the time. Even if we don't act on the impulse, it's there. And so in the week ahead, when something happens where that self-protective instinct flares up and you just want to get angry, you want to think evil thoughts, potentially do evil things, remember that we as Christians are called to follow after Christ. Now, I'm not talking about how you do it so much as to what's and, and what's being done I mean, I know that for each of us it will differ. It will be a different experience that you'll go through. And so what you might need to do in response is something. You might not be able in this instance to just accept it, to just not give any form of response. But what I need you to know, though, is that how you respond must be godly. How you respond is important. What you do might differ from situation to situation, God doesn't want us to be like cattle. I love Phil's illustration from years ago that our modern churches are filled with nice people teaching nice people how to be even more nice. That's not Christianity. I know that for many that is, but that's not what it's about. 
And so, yes, we have to have backbones. We have to be able to assert what is right and what is true. But yet we must do it in the manner that is consistent with Christ, how he did it. So God is especially concerned about how we behave. He rewards people for good behavior. We don't know what that reward will be in all instances, but we know that he will reward you for good behavior. He will make you a better person. He will make you a stronger Christian. He will use you to touch people's hearts. So think about the pressure that you're going to face this week. Think about instances where you failed before, and I'm asking you to be prepared. Be prepared to go to God in that instant for the strength that's necessary to fight off that temptation. Think of Joseph and what he went through. Being sold into slavery by his brothers, to hear his brothers debating over whether to kill him or not when he's in the pit, to then be sold off as if he's just so much of a, of a thing to be dispensed with in this way, and then to be held in high regard in Potiphar's house, and yet, for righteousness' sake, again, tossed into prison, rejected. And yet, he had the, uh, the uh, presence of mind at the instant when his brothers are coming to him years later to immediately say, oh, no, no, don't beat yourselves up over this. God did this. God did it for good. So whatever bad thing you have happened in your life, God is doing it for good. He wants us all in these pressure situations so that we learn how to respond as Christ responded. All of us, none of us are exempt. So I encourage you as we come to the table to reflect on this too. It is this where we eat the body and drink the blood of Christ where we are reminded that this is what we fall back to every week. It's why we do it every week because we must confess our need of God in every situation. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your patience with us. And we do pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would remind us in the week ahead that this is something that you take very seriously. This is not something that we can just wink at and that we can excuse in ourselves and one another. We pray, Father, for your strength and give us your insight and give us uh, your power of your Holy Spirit when the time comes. We ask you now to be with us, to bless this to our bodies and our bodies for your use. In Jesus' name, amen.